Well, good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome to this uh, unusual Monday of Cancer Center Grand Rounds, and we're delighted that you're here um, and appreciate your attendance uh, off-cycle. So this is a great opportunity to get to hear some remarks from uh, an esteemed uh, colleague. So um, welcome everybody in the room and those watching remotely. Um, I'm going to introduce Dr. Lohenbaum in just a moment, um, but I have to read uh, a, a mandatory statement. Dr. Lohenbaum has financial interests. He's a consultant for Boeinger, Beringer, Ingelheim, Genetech, and Celgene. Um, Dr. Alan Hartford, uh, our course director for the CME activity reports that his relationship with industry has been resolved by validating the content of his presentation through a peer review process. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. He is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. For CME credit for today's uh, uh, program, please use the activity code displayed outside the room after the presentation. And uh, we will facilitate uh, questions and answers at the conclusion of Dr. Lindelbaum's remarks. It is indeed a pleasure to welcome Ruggiero to uh, meet with us today. Um, he is a professor, professor of oncology at Yale School of Medicine. He's the chief medical officer for the Smilo Cancer Hospital, which is located at Yale New Haven Medical Center. And uh, today he's Delighted to share some remarks with you. Welcome. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. I understand this is not your typical Grand Rounds day, so I appreciate you joining me. I, um, I was thinking about a topic. Sandra asked me, what are you going to talk about? And I felt that value and cancer medicine and value would be an appropriate topic for this conversation. One, because it's relevant to all cancer programs in the country. Second, because it has something to do with what I do and what I think about on a day-to-day -day basis. What I conveniently forgot is that this happens to be the birthplace for value medicine. So I realized last night driving up here from New Haven that there's absolutely no chance that I will say anything original or innovative in this conversation today. Once I realized that, I relaxed quite a bit. I felt it was too late to talk about lung cancer, so I'm going to venture into uh, value medicine. I don't like to stay behind the podium, but I think in order to be able to change the slides in a timely fashion, that's probably what I need to do, so I apologize, and I'll come off the podium as soon as we go into, uh, into uh, the Q&A session. So anyway, healthcare costs. Uh, healthcare is uh, scheduled to uh, hit $2.2 trillion in just a few years from now, about $170 billion in cancer medicine. Okay? Now, when we talk about healthcare costs and we talk about this issue to clinicians, and I think oncologists in particular, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind is drug costs. Right? That, that's what everybody automatically thinks about. And I think what this slide shows to us is that drug, or what's listed here as pricing failures, actually is a small component of what accounts 
for healthcare costs in the United States, even when we go into cancer costs, and we'll do that in a few slides. So actually, the purpose of this conversation today is really to try to understand what it is that a clinician can do, or we all as clinicians can do, you know, to somehow respect the whole concept of value, right, as being quality over cost, outcome versus cost. So I think that's where I'd like to focus this conversation, some initiatives that we have taken in New Haven, you know, to try to change clinical practice in a way that provides better quality care, and I think ultimately leads to a more reasonable use of resources, and not so much from a uh, healthcare economics perspective or a policy perspective. So the other concept that um, many clinicians or physicians in the United States have in general is that uh, patients are somewhat shielded from healthcare costs, right? You know, that there's a relationship between employers and third-party payers, and that patients have very little to do with that transaction other than perhaps a component of what, you know, they pay towards their premium, you know, that's automatically deducted from their paycheck. Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, what this slide shows is that this is hitting everybody's bottom line. Right? You know, as of now, if you look at the section in red, premiums and out-of-pocket costs for a family are projected to equal half of the median household income. This is now. So this is becoming an alarming issue for most American families, and it needs to be addressed. Cancer care. So we talked about costs. I think it's fair to say that we have no mandated quality standards, I think one could argue that we don't have a consensus quality standard. You know, we have several instruments or standards that we somehow uh, negotiate. Some of them hit our bottom line, some of them uh, don't, but we don't have a standard quality um, mandate, you know, for cancer medicine in the United States. I think fee-for-service system continues to reward over-utilization. I think this is something that we see perhaps a little less here than we see in other parts of the country. It is specialty dependent to some extent. It's also geographic, uh, uh, different, geographically different in, in, in the regions of the United States. So where I used to be in my former life in Florida is the way people practice is very different than I am sure the way people practice here in uh, New Hampshire. I think we do a poor job at end of life, this is particularly relevant for cancer uh, physicians and providers. It is not just costly, it's potentially harmful. And I think it's inconsistent with our patients' wishes. And the truth is, drugs are also important. The drug prices at this point are not sustainable, just simply not sustainable. So let's think about this a little bit more. So we talked about the 125 trillion going into 173 in just another three or four years or so. And what's important is this uh, here at the bottom, I don't know if you can project, yes, which is cancer patients are less than 1% of all commercial payer, the commercial payer population. And yet, those patients account for about 10% of healthcare costs. 
So I think the whole message behind this is we're not going to be able to continue to do business as usual. And some, I think some systems are already ahead of the game. Some systems are clearly behind this. So I think that that's what I'm going to show is what we've done in the past few years to try to catch up with some of these ideas. And the Institute of Medicine basically published what I think is an indictment on how we practice cancer medicine in the United States. It's in the top uh, sentence. Care often is not patient-centered. Many patients do not receive palliative care to manage their symptoms or side effects. And decisions about care often are not based on latest scientific evidence. I mean, this is terrible. Think about it. This is what we do every day. Right? This is what we actually strive to do in the best way we can. And this is the conclusion of the Institute of Medicine. This is from 2013. So what is in the control of the clinicians? Okay, so I'll talk a little bit about evidence-based care in a, in a somewhat uh, superficial level, at least, stuff that I think is readily achievable. Talk about end of life. We'll talk about ED visits, admissions, readmissions, a little bit about clinical pathways. And I'm just going to mention care coordination. I will not go into that at this point. Uh, if you have questions, we can talk about that at the end. So um, one in three people treated with chemo do not receive a regimen that is consistent with best practice. One in three. Okay? Think about this and think about how this applies to other professions, right? Patients are often hospitalized because of side effects, which could have been avoided, uh, by using other treatment regimens or by using uh, better supportive care. Patients frequently receive tests and treatments that they do not need, okay? putting them at risk for side effects and imposing an additional care burden and cost. So I know I'm not making a lot of friends with the people who provide cancer uh, care, but this is reality, right? I mean, this is pretty much where we are. And it doesn't have to be here. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not what happens here. But we're talking about the whole country, right? So ASCO came up with choosing wisely. I know it will be impossible for any of you to read what says here. In fact, for me, it may be difficult, but I... I'll just say, do not use cancer-directed therapy for solid tumor patients okay, who have a performance status of three or four, okay, uh, who do not, are not eligible for a clinical trial, and there's really no evidence to support further anti-cancer treatment. I, uh, I think this is a huge issue, you know, low-performance status patients, patients who uh, are treated without evidence uh, to support it, patients um, who really, in fact, don't sometimes desire to be treated that way. Do not use CT or PET or any other uh, radiology tests in staging of prostate cancer at low risk for METs. Do not do uh, imaging studies for early breast cancer patients at low risk. Do not perform surveillance tests or imaging tests for, individual for individuals treated for breast cancer with curative intent. And do not use colony-stimulating factors 
for primary prevention, primary prevention of febrile neutropenia for patients with less than 20% risk for this complication. Now, I can assure you that we do not practice this way. Okay, or many medonks do not practice this way. Right? And so this is a, what I would say is low-hanging fruit. Right? You know, this is stuff that ASCO identified as being absolutely non-controversial in terms of the practice of medicine. There's more to that. You know, to be judici judicious about the use of anti-nausea medications, right? Do not use combination in treating metastatic breast cancer that you still see happen, although that has changed a little bit recently. Do not use advanced imaging technologies to monitor patients for cancer recurrence. Stuff that you see every day in clinical practice um, in certain systems above all. Do not use PSA tests um, for certain populations of men or subsets of the population. And do not use a targeted therapy um, if you don't have the target. So again, there, for, for many people in this audience, this may seem silly, right? This is like, I mean, why bother? This is obvious. This is just good clinical practice. This is uh, very basic evidence-based uh, medicine. Now, I assure you that ASCO would not go through the trouble of doing this if this was not an issue in the first place, right? So this is a real issue. Each and every one of these 10 that we talked about. So I think that that's in a, more than trying to adhere to each and every one or memorize. Or uh, I think that it's important. It's an important message that we clinicians tend to practice um, cancer medicine outside, often outside, of evidence-based medicine. Care at the end of life. Um, Patients with, this is a JAMA paper that I like very much. So patients with metastatic solid tumors that were admitted to an acute care hospital, they die on average three months after discharge, okay? 75% of those patients will die within one year. This is first admission. Most patients state that they prefer to die at home and that quality of life is their priority. Despite all this, 2009 Medicare data say the following. 80% of patients are hospitalized within three months of their death. 27%, one in four, will get at least one ICU admission. And 20% of the patients only get transitioned to hospice in the last three days of life, often preceded by an ICU admission. This is real data. This isn't stuff that I came up with or you know, that we practice at Smilo Cancer Hospital. This is, this is real data. And the costs, let me see if I can put, yeah, are staggering. I mean, if you think about this, if you go to the sixth month before death, you know, that's the mean inpatient cost. And let's see how that changes as you get to the last month before death. There are other publications that point to the fact that this is the single largest cost you know, for cancer patients um, throughout their whole episode. It's hospitalization, particularly at the end of life. 
And then this is data from Vizient, and, and which illustrates the point in a different way, a little bit more detailed. And you can see the difference between patients that expired with more than 15 days under hospice care. That episode is $41,000, just about, versus patients who expire less than three days of being referred to hospice. That goes up to 53%. That's a 30% difference. So this uh, prompted us to look at our own data, right? And we felt that end of life was a huge opportunity for us at Smilo. So we started with a pilot program of lung cancer patients. Lung cancer patients, uh, I take care of lung cancer patients. It was easy for me and my team to look at it first and understand the nuances of uh, the care of lung cancer patients. And we came up with just about the same numbers, okay? About 25% of patients received chemo within 30 days of death. Now, people say, okay, but some were appropriate for chemo and died of complications. Well, that's not the vast majority of this case, okay? These are patients that were heavily pretreated before they got to this point. About one in five had an ICU stay. And then you can just go down the list. And we were so, not perplexed necessarily by the data. In fact, you could argue that we knew we were going to find this, which is why we did the project in the first place. But we needed to validate this somehow. So we looked at uh, data for all solid tumor patients. And the numbers didn't change that much, right? So we were about 20% for chemo within 30 days of death, radiation that was not strictly used for palliative purposes, pain, for example, surgery, and we excluded minor surgeries, insertion of a catheter for pleural effusion, for example. These are more substantial procedures. ICU admission and an average of two, twice in 30 days. Okay, ED admission, 40%. And then hospital, 50% of our patients were hospitalized within 30 days of death, 50. Often, twice. So the good news is um, this is not much different than the Farber data, right? And the Farber data is not exactly the way our data was put together, but the numbers, you know, in terms of patients in less than three days or more than seven days. The chemo data was a little less than ours. ED visits, substantial hospitalization data, substantial ICU data, perhaps a little less than ours. But we did confidence intervals if we were to do a formal comparison. So this is not unique. It's not unique. This is, uh, th these are large referral centers for tertiary and quaternary um, care of cancer patients. The expectations are different. The expertise is different. And I suspect that at the end, this is what leads to uh, this sort of utilization at the end of life. I don't think it serves, I think, uh, our patients very well. Now, one dilemma we faced, and I uh, had these conversations with a lot of different folks, is, okay, so how do you actually know that for sure? Right? I mean, so if you and I are seeing a patient together on the floor and there's a 
we, we differ in our recommendations. You know, somebody will say, you know what, I think this patient should go to hospice. We've exhausted you know, our ability to provide some you know, meaningful care to this patient. Somebody else, and I can tell you we have at least, um, even in the lung cancer uh, team, uh, a lot of people who feel differently say, no, no, I'm not letting this happen. This patient hasn't had immunotherapy, for example. And we're almost at a point right now that you cannot let a lung cancer patient go to his or her grave without at least one dose of immunotherapy, right? That, I mean, I know the lung cancer docs are laughing in the room because that's true. And so how do you quantify that thing, right? I mean, how do you come up with a system that says, well, your judgment is such, my judgment is different. You know, how do you educate folks in that respect? And how do you provide, perhaps? So what we've worked with the folks from the and I, I, I'm sorry I didn't come on the, you know, the people who helped us with this uh, at the School of Management at Yale, is a uh, mortality risk model. And we're still perfecting the model. Uh, and basically what we want is a sort of a reproducible quantitative instrument you know, that we can incorporate into our EMR, hopefully, um, that will allow clinicians, you know, to have at least a sense of the likelihood that a particular patient, based on a, several different factors, will die within 30, 60, or 90 days. So we are um, trying to do this. Um, we're, like I said, in the last stages of this, um, of this uh, publication. We hope to uh, finish this in the next month or so. So that, those are the conundrums that, again, we have and in, in trying to apply that concept, the initial concept, you know, to day-to-day -day, um, clinical care. Obviously, another approach that we have taken is uh, trying to create a more robust palliative care program outside of the inpatient uh, uh, arena. So we have a very um, strong palliative care program um, for in all of our inpatient floors, we have four inpatient floors, um, but we don't have yet, we're right now as we speak, putting this together, an outpatient program. And every person who understands palliative care or who is a palliative care provider understands that that relationship really starts in the outpatient setting, that it's very, very hard to make a meaningful difference when the patients are literally within a week or two and you know, of death and hospitalized and under uh, enormous, uh, enormous uh, stress. So this is the work that everybody has seen before. This is Jennifer Tamel from uh, MGH, and they looked at lung cancer patients. This is six years old now, and the difference here was standard oncologic care for lung cancer patients. Now, there is very little that is standard about lung cancer care MGH at that time. I mean, those guys were pros, okay? They, they really knew their stuff. And so this was, uh, I would say, excellent uh, standard uh, oncologic care for lung cancer patients, plus the same, uh, versus the same plus early palliative care. And not only there was a difference in the quality of life parameters that are shown here, but surprisingly, there was a difference in survival in favor of palliative care. Now, if this, everybody has said this, I'm sorry if I'm being repetitive, but if this was a drug, it would have gotten approved, right? 
I mean, you would, the FDA would approve a drug like this for lung cancer. So it's a very important concept. We've expanded the program. We just recently recruited a director for uh, outpatient palliative care, and we're very hopeful that within the next two or three months, we'll be able to put together an outpatient presence in which every patient with stage four disease will have at least one encounter with the palliative care doctor as they progress through their journey. The other thing we're doing is um, helping physicians and all providers, really, uh, communicate with their patients about expectations. Now, it's interesting, because that's another one that clinicians tend to get a little defensive about, myself included, right? So I, by the way, I'll never say anything about clinicians that I personally don't feel myself. So uh, this is when people say, no, you need to learn how to talk to your patients about um, end of life and goals of care. And so everybody's first reaction is, really? I mean, are you serious? Of course I know this. Of course we all know this. And there is an abundant literature as to how we can, always, we can all do this better. The best paper I have about this is Jane Weeks uh, from the Farber, who um, we all remember fondly. And she did this work in colorectal and lung. So 69% of patients with lung cancer and 81% of patients with colorectal cancer believed that their chemo would cure their disease. Not 10%, not 20, not 40, okay? 70% of lung cancer patients, 80% of colorectal patients. So what, uh, what Jane and her group very, uh, I think, uh, pointedly uh, said in, in the end of their uh, manuscript, which was a New England Journal publication, is, is here. That you can make an argument that um, unless your patients have a very clear understanding of what chemo can or cannot accomplish, uh, you're not truly obtaining informed consent. Um, so we have um, several initiatives going on, and I, I know you, you guys pay attention to this as well, um, there's a lot in terms of communication that the clinicians themselves, not the palliative care specialists necessarily, but the clinicians can do and can learn about this issue. So that the patients, by if they get hospitalized, this conversation becomes a lot easier. Um, emergency room, we talked about this. So this is, again, vision data. This is emergency room use by chemo patients. And you see the differences based on lung, colon, pancreatic, et cetera, et cetera. So this is ER visits per patient per year in blue, and ER chemo-related visits, so chemo-related in red. Um, so this is pretty significant, right? Um, <coughs> So it can be uh, two and a half visits per year for these patients throughout their course. This is not pleasant, right? I mean, it's a huge, huge reason for dissatisfaction for every patient, right? The ER doctors um, tend to um, 
admit most of these patients. We'll show you our own data. Uh, there are several reasons why this is not an appropriate mechanism to admit patients to the hospital besides cost. Not talking about cost. So this is in patient used by cancer type, going to admissions the same, right? And this is the cost piece. So this is what's called a high performer versus AMC peers. Um, and this is visits via ED and admits in, in general, showing that AMCs tend to use the EDs more often than other high uh, performing uh, organizations when it comes to hospital admissions. There's work to be done here. So again, motivated by these data, we looked at our own data. So we did a preview of this uh, and over just five months in the beginning of 2014 and came up with 391 patients that were admitted. Uh, most of these admissions had to do with either expected progression or exacerbation of chronic symptoms, so acute on chronic, right? So pain gets out of control, right? Or dyspnea is more uh, pronounced, uh, or some other reason that you can think that leads the patients and the families to call appropriately, right? And then our default um, was to just refer them all to the emergency room because we had trouble accommodating these patients in our clinic schedules. So 90% of these patients were admitted to the hospital, 90%. I don't know what the data would be here, but our emergency room doctors will admit almost every patient with cancer that hits the ED. Um, once they get admitted, they will spend almost seven days in the hospital. And 62, you might think, well, okay, uh, these are patients that call at 11 o'clock at night or 2 o'clock in the morning. They have no other day. They got to go hold of the fellow, and the fellow, first year fellow, typically will say, go to the ED. I mean, what would you do if you were, I, I did the same thing, right? We all did the same thing. So, you know, go to the ED. Well, this is not the case, right? 62% of these patients came between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m showed an enormous gap in our infrastructure, right? And these are the, this is the data broken down by disease. So gastrointestinal, huge problem, right? I mean, the, our GI docs are so oversubscribed, including the APRNs, that there really was no way they could see the urgent visits in their normal clinic schedule. Right? And so they all go to the emergency room. Same with lung, et cetera, et cetera. You can just you know, look at the slide. And these are the reasons, right? So um, dehydration, um, failure to thrive, a few patients with fever neutropenia, a few patients with altered mental status, abdominal, et cetera. I mean, most of these, and you can look at the bottom if it projects well, at least, conservatively speaking, 50% of these patients had issues that could have been addressed in an ambulatory setting, right? And resolved, even if, uh, let's say, they had to come back the next day, but they wouldn't have to be admitted. So as a result of this, we've uh, recently identified an 
and I'll tell you how we did this, uh, funds for a dedicated uh, urgent care clinic for cancer patients. So we will have a separate, the problem here was, I'll tell you the whole story because I think I may have time. The whole story was we then created as a result of this a, a schedule for the eight PRNs to actually see these patients in, as urgent visits. That would be outside of the normal clinic uh, schedule. The truth of the matter is it worked beautifully for about three months and then it was non-sustainable. It just, what the volume was too big and they had to care for their own practices uh, anyway. So it became clear to us that unless, unless we had a dedicated space with dedicated staff you know, to do this, we wouldn't be successful. So uh, we hope by January 1st to open an urgent care clinic it will be open from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. seven days a week. Um, so let's talk now about drug prices. So over the past decade, the monthly costs for anti-cancer drugs have more than doubled. More than doubled okay? in uh, a decade. Huge issue for everyone. Now again, this is a classic one in which people say, okay, so this doesn't uh, necessarily uh, um, hit the patient, right? Uh, there are some issues, there are some assistance programs, the companies provide other um, alternatives for patients who can't uh, actually pay for their co-pays, et cetera. Here's what's happening to our patients, okay? So there's a 2.5 times the risk of personal bankruptcy in cancer patients. Personal bankruptcy. And there is not one person in this room who sees cancer patients, okay, who has not been in a situation in which the patient or the family will say, we will sell our house, okay, to offer this treatment to our loved one. Um, and then what happens if that can't be done is that 45% of the patients don't take their medication. So instead of taking erlotinib once a day, they'll take it every other day. Or imatinib for that matter. How many times that happens? A lot more than we think it does. Right? So it's a real problem for patients. This is a real problem. So clinical pathways is another one of, of um, our recent initiatives. I, I don't know if you all use clinical pathways here. Uh, for, for, for cancer. Uh, these are some of the obvious benefits of using. This is a, a, a debate that took just about two years. Uh, I think we have most of our clinicians in a good position, you know, to embrace clinical pathways. This is hard, and I'll show you why it's hard in just a minute. So insurance is adherence to guidelines. So that eliminates, you know, eliminates. It, it decreases variation significantly. It does give you a much better sense when you choose your regimen, you will account or take into account the cost of that regimen versus others. We talked about care variation. And then you actually have data that you can do you know, outcomes assessment and um, comparative assessments. So th there's some benefits um, for the use of pathways that I believe are appropriate for large, complex academic uh, cancer programs. Um, there's also cost savings, right? And this is data um, 
that's chemo only for non-small cell lung cancer, but it's not restricted just to the regimen itself. There are other categories in which you see a decrease of the cost. So maybe acute care visits, not, but chemo, as we talked about, yes. The use of uh, erythropoiesis as stimulating agents and colony stimulating factors. So you will see a reduction in those you know, when you treat people on pathways. Now, this is not easy. I mean, this is a lung cancer uh, example. Now, I happen to be a fan, fan, you could say it that way. I mean, I like carbopendab. I like it. I've gotten used to it. I think my patients do well on it. I manage the side effects well. I think this is what we do as clinicians, right? You get comfortable with a treatment, and you develop an expertise on that treatment. Well, once we go on pathways, I will not be able to use carbopendab. So it's somewhat upsetting, right? Because I do believe that this is the best that I can offer my patients. But if you look at the evidence, if you look at the data, there is no difference, right? So it takes a, um, it takes a different way for clinicians to think about this. It, it does take a little bit of way of what we all learned as you know, physicians, that autonomy, that decision making is um, a little bit disrupted when you have to treat people on pathways. It's not an easy switch. Two years ago, I thought it was relatively straightforward. It is not. Okay, so it does take, um, it does take a cultural shift to basically do this. And I think the data here confirms the same thing, that uh, you can maintain the survival with 30% lower cost. This is US oncology data. So where are we with all this, right? So what, what, what are the areas that academic uh, cancer programs have opportunities? So we talked about hospitalization rates, okay? So admissions, readmissions, et cetera. We talked about costs per episode of chemo. Certainly opportunities there as well. We talked about the use of um, ED, right? Um, for patients, and we talked about palliative care opportunities. I mean, these are significant buckets, I think, that you can strategize you know, to, towards your migration uh, to a value-based approach. Now, if you look at the very bottom here, I'm very happy I brought this quote, because this comes from uh, <laughs> well, the center. I do. So this is a new, very, very simplified approach to new patient models. So here's your fee-for-service, right? You get rewarded for patient volume, length of stay, and ancillary testing. That, that's basically how I can tell you how we still practice at Yonu uh, mostly, okay? Then you get into the DRG, quality cost incentives, and you have this issue, right? Of course, we... Um, work uh, quite a bit on this issue, maybe not so much on this issue, um, but this is what's going to happen, right? Um, 
And I think what, what's going to change in the environment is down here, right? You will improve the individual experience. Uh, you will improve the health of the populations, right? Reduce the per capita costs, and you will manage utilization a lot better. So this is where we're all going. And in that respect, I want to share for the next five or ten minutes just our own experience with the oncology care model. So the oncology care model is a new payment model, right? Which encourages, this is from CNMI, which encourages practices to improve care and lower costs through an episode-based payment. Uh, it's interesting because it incorporates a two-part payment system. This is where uh, CMS was uh, clever. Uh, they um, include a monthly per beneficiary per month. It has changed. The name is no longer this. It's Mios. But for the duration of the episode, and there's a potential for a performance-based payment. So these are the three components. Um, let's look at them separately. So the first one is the fee-for-service is maintained in this program. Okay? At least for the initial two years. I can assure you that there was no way that I would be able to sell this to Yale New Haven Hospital if we did not have this bucket. It was hard enough with this bucket. Okay? Um, so Medicare patients are enrolled at the time chemo's initiated for a six-month episode. You can have more than one episode per patient. Uh, you build your fee-for-service. Okay? Uh, it does not change for the, as long as you're enlisted, except that there's a, a one-sided risk or a two-sided risk model after the first 24 months. Then you have what I said. It's Mido's payment. You get automatically an additional $160 per patient per month for each six-month episode. Okay? Um, and that's what funds your initiatives to reach this, the performance-based payments. Right? So they only occur if you reduce Medicare spending. And there's a complicated formula, what you need to hit, what the performance metrics are. I didn't think this was um, necessarily uh, appropriate to discuss in detail here, but I'm happy to answer uh, questions. If we build less than our benchmark, and there's a benchmark that's calculated in conjunction with uh, CMS, and we meet the quality metrics, we can um, get the difference back minus the initial 4%. So we have to hit at least 4% less. And then after that, we share the benefits. So what are we going to do? Uh, as we said, we will build a dedicated oncology urgent care clinic. We'll expand uh, our palliative care program. We are working more and more on communication strategies, and we will hire seven care managers, seven, just to take care of Medicare patients on enlisted and OCM. So, which is unique, because if you think about it, that's the risk, really, uh, from a financial perspective, is it's not what happens to Medicare patients, because all of the changes that we will implement or hope to implement actually will apply to Medicare and non-Medicare patients. So we are at risk in the non-Medicare segment of the population, right? I mean, we're still being reimbursed for what we do to, 
today, population, there is still an incentive to build fee-for-service, right? But so all of the infrastructure applies to all of our patients. It's only the care managers that can only see or follow the Medicare patients. So again, um, two more slides. I, I honestly think that um, clinical excellence still trumps all of this. You, you, you cannot do this without the best doctors and the best nurses. We, and, and I know it's easy to say that. Um, there's an enormous, enormous amount of uh, effort and investment uh, that needs to be made into recruiting the very best cancer providers. Uh, I um, met with your chief quality officer uh, this morning. I, I'm, I don't think I need to go over the issue of safety after that meeting. You guys are way ahead of the game uh, and have done an exceptional job, exceptional job at managing uh, uh, safety and, and quality in many ways. And I think the same with patient-centered care. I, I think uh, as, as, as we are proud of the patient-centered or the patient experience that I think we've built over the past few years, so are you. Um, and um, I think you guys have done an outstanding job. But that needs to be all across. So that's the difference. So I spend an enormous amount of my time nowadays making sure that what we've done in the big house, right, in New Haven, we do in every single site that bears a smile on name. That's a huge problem. <laughs> huge project, I was going to say. Most of my day-to-day -day is a problem, but it can be done, right? And that's where the difference is, because many times the opportunities will be outside of your main house, right? So this is the value. This is adapted from an NCCN uh, conference. Uh, this is now published. And this is where I think we do make a difference. Um, and and I, 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 I don't believe that uh, advertisement and primetime TV will uh, you know, make the difference. Uh, at the end of the day, I do think that academic cancer programs have to provide services that are not available elsewhere. That's a part of our mission. We just have to do it, whether it makes money or not. Right? Um, I do think that patients that fail standard of care, they need to be seen in academic cancer programs at least once. They need to be managed not by the time they get to their fourth line regimen. They need to be managed before that. They need to be co-managed before they get to that point. One thing I did not comment that I think is crucial to achieving the second uh, bullet point here is a solid phase one program. So it's another huge investment that our program has made in the past two years. Um, I think that that's an opportunity um, uh, for every academic cancer program. Access is huge. You know, we uh, tell you a little story that I just lived through last week, uh, Friday. So about six months ago, seven months ago, we took over a hematology oncology practice at a hospital called Lawrence Memorial 
in New London, close to the border with Rhode Island, right? And that was a fiber program. So for two and a half years, that was a fiber shop. So when we came in, their access was 12 days. You couldn't get in. That's 12 days. So Friday, we had our six-month meeting with everyone. We looked at the clinical We spent every week Every week, joint meetings between the clinical team, the administrative team, people from New Haven came every single week. Today, that access is now reduced to two to three days. Right? So you can't do this without access. It's as simple, as intuitive as it is. It's actually somewhat complicated to do, uh, especially, um, again, in more remote uh, places. We talked about clinical trials. I had two um, conference calls this morning with uh, uh, Dartmouth uh, physicians who practice outside of uh, Lebanon, and I probably heard clinical trials 18 times. Um, and availability of clinical trials, access to clinical trials, right? Uh, I think innovation uh, is, I mean, self-evidence. I, 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 don't, I didn't talk about efficiency of care, because again, it's kind of a boring subject. It's absolutely crucial you know, to all of these other uh, bullet points. Um, and so uh, I gave you an example of a clinical practice change that we, and that change that occurred in that particular practice has occurred in all of the SMILO practices outside of New Haven, all of them. So that, that, that's important. Patient-centered care we talked about, and of course we can never forget our education mission, our training mission, which is uh, ultimately, I think, what all of us want to do in academic uh, medical centers, right? You know, we just want to make sure that we uh, train our physicians uh, to be the next best physicians in the country. So with that, I'm going to stop, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. unwanted variation, improving quality, cutting cost, and other types of waste um, across a large heterogeneous health system. So, uh, you know, and I'm just thinking of our own example. We're this week about to sign a definitive agreement with the LA Health System, which is the second largest hospital in the state, makes us, um, um, when it's finally consummated, a much larger health system, but brings 400 physicians who at least initially are not actually employed by Dartmouth-Hitchcock. How do you persuade um, your colleagues that are already in the tribe, but more importantly, how do you, what are the carrots and sticks and, um, and persuasive techniques that help physicians that don't actually work for you change their practices? Simple question, right? <laughs> but uh, so I would say the, on the carrot side, um, we, uh, we have 100% commitment from the disease team leaders in the main campus to 
um, welcome the physicians from that are the hospital and make them core members of those teams. So in other words, physicians who up until now typically practice in a um, community setting will now be members of a multidisciplinary team with access to resources that were not previously available to them. And I think they, most of the physicians, not all of them, by the way, there will always be some that will be resistant to that, but they will immediately notice how their practices are enhanced by that academic collaboration. So um, we've made a point of uh, maintaining, um, especially for all of our new recruits, an academic day in the main campus, uh, participation in the research meetings of every disease team, participation even in the operational meetings of each disease team. So there's a, an integration, right, of that uh, that happens at the academic level that is enormously satisfying to most physicians uh, who join the system. The second is the efficiency piece. So we have, uh, and Ann Chang is our network officer, she deserves the credit for this. So we have a system of um, integrating the clinical practices ac across the entire system. So within six months, as I just gave you an example, an enormous amount of efficiency is realized within that practice, right? And, and so what seems to be clunky, cumbersome, difficult, et cetera, et cetera, you know, in most cases becomes a lot more efficient. And again, you gain their hearts and minds, right? You know, people realize that they're practicing um, with more ease and, and in a more satisfying environment. The stick is that we are about to include all of those components in everybody's compensation model. So doctors that were brought into our system with, um, with uh, that had their compensation based only on clinical productivity because that was their reality, right? Up until now, will have a good chunk of that compensation based on um, other metrics. Participation in clinical research, leadership positions, participation in academic committees, et cetera, et cetera, so that more and more um, um, they feel that it's part of their normal job, right? To, and they will be evaluated on those metrics um, to be uh, citizens of the academic medical center. So again, it has taken us a little while to get to that, but that's, so it will be part of, even in one practice, so to give you the example, and I don't know the details about Elliott Hospital, so at St. Francis, hospital in Hartford, right? It's the only uh, member of our system in which we do not employ the doctor because of legal regulatory issues and at the last moment it just wasn't possible. And so we have a management agreement with them. So in fact, what's even interesting and more interesting is everybody else in the practice is employed by Yale Haven Hospital. So the nurses, the pharmacists, everybody else. So we manage the entire clinical operation we just couldn't employ the docs. And they, uh, we manage their clinical research program too. So in the management agreement, we have four buckets of, again, uh, quality metrics, academic metrics, research metrics, et cetera. 
and they uh, are evaluated every six months and receive a component of their compensation based on those metrics. Yes? I just wonder how you square the, the two big trends that are out there. The trend that you talked about, the need to standardize, decrease the cost of care, against the trend that's occurring to personalize care. This whole, you know, rollout of personalized care based on your genes, the type of cancer you have, the markers, the genetics. So, so how do we, how do we, I mean, I, it just doesn't seem like personalized care is affordable. Um, how do we manage patient expectations about that and um, do something that's even close to, to you know, what we're promising personalized mm -hmm. care? So uh, I would argue that personalized care, I mean, if, if that implies, you know, let's say targeted agents for people whose tumors harbor a certain target, I, I, or um, that's standard of care, right? And in most cases, it happens to be cost effective, you know, compared to other alternatives. I, I don't know if you imply that personalized in a way that's broader than just tumor profiling or molecular targeted uh, therapy. But again, when it comes to molecular targeted therapy, in fact, the problem we've had was the opposite. So when we, um, we realized a couple of years ago that our doctors outside of the main campus were not systemat systematically checking their patients' tumors um, as they should be. And, and so we, as part of that initiative, we actually recruited a new uh, head of um, um, molecular profiling who has as one of our initial um, projects to create a system that um, standardizes molecular profiling all across the network. So, um, so I, don't, I don't know if I understood the question uh, exactly how you meant it, or, but I don't see a contradiction between- Do you think personalized care could be cost effective? Yes. Yes. I, I, I do believe that. I, at least based on the evidence that we have today, yes. And then if it's not evidence-based, then I think we have um, in clinical trial options that will address those issues. But do I think that, um, that there is a potential for um, excess? Yes, but I, I don't see that uh, typically. In fact, if anything, the again, I'll say one more time, the concern we have is the underutilization of uh, molecular approaches, you know, to treatment uh, outside of the main campus. So I don't particularly see that as a, as a contradiction. I, I think that would be, see, uh, uh, value-based or, or rational use of resources does not contradict advances in the treatment of cancer, should not, right? I mean, targeted-based treatment is a major accomplishment of cancer medicine in the past decade. Major accomplishment. Um, so it's a huge area of priority for us. Final questions? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much.